episode 354, Seven Vital Success Factors to Stand Up a CIN, Clinically Integrated Network. Today, I speak with Sean Rhodes. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, we're going to talk about the realities of setting up a clinically integrated network, otherwise known as a CIN. If only the whole process was unicorns and rainbows, but as you likely suspected, it's not. Setting up a clinically integrated network is hard work, but the payoff for patients and clinicians alike can be worth fighting for. First of all, what is a clinically integrated network? It is a kind of ACO, Accountable Care Organization. It is a legal entity that is a form of an ACO. So every CIN is an ACO, but not all. In fact, most ACOs are not CINs. CINs enable coordinated care. Everybody in the network gets together to figure out how to enable clinicians to, for reals, follow their patients through multiple care settings and plan for an entire care journey. It can really help patients navigate our crazy healthcare industry by giving them a trusted team that plots out a proactive path toward better healthcare outcomes and then make sure the patient stays on that path. It can be a really beautiful thing. Listen to episode 349 with Lisa Trumbull for real-world examples of the patient outcomes and experience a CIN, Clinically Integrated Network, can generate. All this for the patient, while at the same time, the total cost of care for Medicare patients goes down. I've heard about 10% on average, but it can be more, as Lisa Trumbull also talks about in episode 349, as aforementioned. All right. As we all know in healthcare, what's best for the patient doesn't, in so many cases, mean higher reimbursements, sadly. So what financial advantages does going through the time and trouble to create a CIN bring? There are basically four financial opportunities that can be realized with a CIN. I learned some of this from my guest today, Sean Rhodes, who called strategically managing these four possible financial incentives, in quotes, a delicate balance. And as I get into some of them, you will see why. All right. CIN financial opportunity number one. Similar to an ACO, if you're a SIN, a CIN, because you are an ACO, you can participate in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, otherwise known as MSSP. The Medicare Shared Savings Program, MSSP, is the way that ACOs, accountable care organizations, get paid a little something extra if they achieve savings goals for Medicare. The provider shares in the savings. Get it? And CINs, clinically integrated networks, are generally well-equipped to realize these shared savings goals because to obtain the quality that you have to to pull off the shared savings, being clinically integrated really helps. Okay, here is clinically integrated network financial opportunity number two. Getting a gang of providers, doctors, together, you can do collective bargaining. So back to basics with this one. You get a bunch of docs together in a region, then you all go to the big Buca plan, meaning the Blue Cross, the Cigna, the Aetna, Anthem, Humana. You go to them together and make your contracting demands as opposed to each little doc practice going in all by yourself and trying to negotiate like David and Goliath style. Now, what the payer might want from your collective crew there, the payer might insist on some kind of value-based agreement. 
Even if it's an FFS fee-for-service contract chassis, they'll attach some kind of quality or outcome component. So again, being organized in a CIN is a bonus either way. Okay, CIN, financial opportunity number three. Your CIN can try to do direct contracting with local employers. Check out episode 350 with Katie Talento for more on direct contracting. Actually, Lisa Trumbull also mentions this in episode 349. All right, lastly, number four, CIN financial opportunity. You can work with local hospitals, quality and efficiency programs. From a hospital financial perspective, they might be interested in the care that happens after an inpatient stay. If the outpatient care at a, you know, integrated skilled nursing facility, for example, is good, then the hospital could, for example, reduce readmissions. Now, caveat, I asked, maybe grilled is a better word, our guest today, Sean Rhodes, about this whole, in air quotes, prevent a readmission business. Because on one hand, oh, wow, you get a couple points back from having lower readmissions, which you can game all day long, by the way. Listen to the show with Dr. Rishi Wadhira for more on how to not get dinged for readmissions, even if you effectively have readmissions. That's episode 326. So said another way, the crafty, I'll bite dubious power move here, if you're a hospital to maximize revenue, is to let patients come back to the hospital after discharge, but just don't call it a readmission. Call it, I don't know, observational? Then bill fee-for-service for the whole thing and get the reducing readmission financial incentives. At this point in the time-space continuum, everybody knows this stuff. This is not some kind of secret that I'm spilling here. Anyway, I bring this up because don't forget that what I just said, the number four CIN financial opportunity that Sean Rhodes had mentioned is hooking up with a local hospital as part of their quality and efficiency program and the hospital looking to the CIN to reduce readmissions. Given the open secret on hospitals and readmissions, my spidey sense just got really curious. So when I pressed on this point, Sean didn't talk about the CIN sharing any financial gains from the reducing readmission incentive program like I might have expected. Instead, he mentioned that having lower readmissions is a way for hospitals to get some negotiating leverage with payers. Like the next time your hospital's payer contract comes up, you can point to lower readmissions and then demand higher FFS fee-for-service fees. You also might be able to improve throughput of profitable service lines by reducing the number of patients who turn back up after their earlier procedure, which is another way, again, to increase FFS revenues, since the more patients you put through, the more revenue. <laughs> this is why I like talking to people with a touchstone to the real world. Do you find out what the actual deal is? Now, I say all this to say that if patients get better care and their care journey is non-fragmented, it's a win-win. And CINs, like most ACOs, have been shown to trim the cost of care with great patient feedback. That's amazing. Just a quick spoiler here, but the seven parameters that Sean Rhodes and I discussed today, which are essential for anyone who is looking to stand up a CIN or basically achieve success in, I would guess, almost any value-based model, you got to have an infrastructure that takes into account the following seven things. Number one, a patient-first and agile culture. Number two, interoperability. Number three, patient-centered processes. Number four, actionable information, not just data. Number five, clinical integration. Number six, strategic planning and alignment of all stakeholders in the CIN. And number seven, strong leadership. My guest today, Sean Rhodes, has worked in performance and quality improvement for many years. He has worked at a clinically integrated network in Bowling Green, Kentucky. 
and he has overseen multiple value-based programs. Sean currently serves as regional VP at Caravan Health. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Sean Rhodes, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. I really appreciate being here. Let's talk about the realities here. You know, it's super easy to say, clinically integrated network. So let's tick through the seven parameters we definitely want to consider when standing up a clinically integrated network, otherwise known as a CIN. So let's talk about the first one. So I think the, the first and foremost is culture. Culture trumps strategy in so many instances. Like if you don't have the right culture and the right mindset to move into that, your intentions can get easily skewed. To have the leadership to move in that direction and to want to instigate change. Most people don't want change. It's, it's very difficult for a lot of people to change. But when you're going down that road, if you don't have the right culture looking at change in the right way, it's going to be very, very difficult. If somebody is super used to, let's increase throughput because that's what drives fee-for-service revenue. Moving away from those things is very difficult. So if the culture of the organization, if the change management isn't done carefully, then you wind up leadership saying one thing and the whole rest of the organization running in a different direction. Exactly. Communication and, and education are key components to, to starting that whole process. How about number two? So I would say interoperability, the ability for so many data systems and so many different things that we have across healthcare these days to be able to talk to each other and, and work with each other. How do you get the information to the right person at the right time in the right place? So that the decisions they make relative to patient care, next steps in care are clear and, and easy to understand. What are you including in interoperability? Like tactically, what does that look like? Is that just you know, so, a framework or is that more than that? I think it's more than that. It's data. I think it's EMRs, information in this EMR, but not in that EMR. It's having someone to be able to facilitate that navigation of understanding of data information and, and how that flows with the patient. So many people just, when they hear interoperability, they think they just think technology. And obviously it's it's yeah. not only the technology, it's also how it's it's used. It's information and information comes in many forms. Being able to communicate with that patient the whole telehealth process and that whole continuum. How does that work with the patient? How do you reach out to the patient? How do they talk with the patient? So it, you're including an interoperability then, not only just interoperability amongst various clinicians and care settings, you're also including in that the patient. Like how does the organizations communicate with the patient? Yes. Another item would be the processes are patient-centered. So you're putting those processes together such that it's from the patient's perspective and understanding that they're built around the patient. So how does that data, information, communication flow across that continuum? So number three then would be patient-centered processes. So we've got number one, got to have your culture, your change management in a way that will net success. Number two, interoperability, which is it's like how does information flow seamlessly, frictionlessly between various entities, including the patient. And then number three, we're, we're, we're talking about patient-centered processes. If a clinically integrated network is not patient-centric, does it not go well? Like, why are we setting this up as a you know, condition of success? Because I think you end up in the siloed processes of healthcare. You look at healthcare as an episode instead of a continuum. And that's a huge barrier. I think anybody that's been a patient can relate. You know, it doesn't seem like when you go from one location to the next that they know what's going on or what has happened with that patient. So having it patient-centered breaks down those silos and breaks down those barriers of communication. I had Dr. Tony DeJoya on who was talking about setting up a patient-centered value system, which he was calling the what should be the new OS of, of healthcare. And he was really looking at it from a 
patient standpoint, but effectively what I'm hearing you say is that it's not only good for the patient, but if you're trying actually to produce results in a clinically integrated network, be them financial or better patient care, this is kind of a must have to be designing workflows and processes with the patient in the middle. It's a must have. Nothing will work effectively and efficiently if you don't have that. If this was written down, I would have my highlighter out right now because a lot of times when we talk about interoperability or we talk about a lot of things, clinical integration, I think if I picture that in my head, I think about it as kind of this linear flow. Like we go from one care setting or one care provider to another one and this is a sort of linear flow chart. And based on what you just said, if we're plotting out all these flows, you put the patient in the middle and then you figure out, you know, almost like a mind map, how everything comes out from the patient or goes around the patient somehow, as opposed to patients just kind of bopping along in this stream of action. And I would think of that really kind of in two perspectives. I think of it with the patient in the center, but also moving along a linear flow so that as you move through the healthcare system or healthcare continuum, all those different points and pieces that are taking care of that patient, the, the various specialists, the primary care are all familiar with what's going on and understanding what's happening through that patient as they move through that linear type system. Let's move on to to number four. We've gotten three kind of things that you definitely, parameters that you have to take a look at. Otherwise, you might be trying to be clinically integrated, but it's not going to go so well. What would you say number four is? One of the things I see most in healthcare is we talk a lot about data. We've got data. And I think that is so true. There is more data in healthcare than it's probably arguable than any other industry out there. The thing we lack a lot of times is taking that data and turning into actionable information. What does that data mean? How do we determine who needs what and when they need what? You know, if you think about chronic care management and and working with patients with chronic diseases, if you can get data down to the standpoint that it's telling you something and it's providing some guidance, then you have some action items you can follow. Otherwise, you're just looking at data that doesn't, you're just looking at data. You're not looking at information. Is that a little bit, though, in the eye of the beholder? You know, how info is actually actionable? You have to be able to move to the protocols. You have to have some sort of agreed upon, how are we going to handle these types of situations? You know, is that people sitting around a table in in a room? I think sometimes, yes. I think certainly within smaller confines of practices and things, they need to have some standardization. But when you think about it across the network, there has to be some agreed upon, this is how we're going to treat patients. That is probably one of the keys to making all of this come together. Are people aligned in the decision-making process of what they're going to do based upon the information that they have? What's the next steps? What is it that we want to accomplish and how do we how do we accomplish that and getting into that process piece? Basically, what we're talking about is doing some pop health thing. Like these are patients that are considered high risk and they have the following, you know, if their A1C is over this and their blood pressure is that, then they're at cardiometabolic risk. And if someone is at high, medium, low, whatever, metabolic risk, then here's the protocol. This is what we're going to do that's actionable that we at an organizational level feel is the right way forward. Obviously, it's still going to be the clinician patient call at the end of the day there has to be a certain amount of adherence to what the best practice is. Otherwise, we're not going to achieve patient outcomes that we're looking for. I mean, that's been proven over and over and over again. If everybody's just doing whatever they want, the best that you're going to be on any given measure is about 70%. And, you know, listen to the show with Bob Matthews if you want to hear the why behind that. But like, that's what's going to wind up happening. So if you want to be better than 70%, then you have to be following those pop health protocols or or whatever. Is is that kind of what you're saying? 
Yes, ma'am. That is exactly it. Okay. We've got actionable information is number four. What do we think is number five? Number five is is you really need a, a go-to person, someone who's overseeing the process. Physicians are driving decisions, but who is driving the process and who is making sure that point A is connecting with point B and that the patient's getting directed to point B in the proper way. And whatever happens at point B is going back to, to point A. We have a mutual friend, Dr. Hugh Sims, and talking with him about clinical integration, we've had a lot of discussions about best practice. And He used a metaphor of if you think about a train and a network of trains and how that works, the train would be the network stations would be the goals you're trying to to achieve from beginning to end. The schedule that you have would be the protocols that are in place to take care of the patients at the right time in the right place. Your dispatch is really the care coordinators to make sure that those points are being connected. Your conductor is, is the positions and providers that are taking part of that. The track you're running on is the process in which you're following. So I think collectively, when you have those things together, then you're able to facilitate who knows what and what's going on. So you, you have to have that dispatch, that leadership role and that go-to person. If I have an issue within a process or a patient, who do I talk to? And, and being able to feed that information back appropriately and across that continuum. And who typically is that person? Is that a nurse? Typically, that, that's going to be a, a nurse navigator on the clinical side, but also somebody on the operational side. In my previous role serving as, as director of clinical integration, that was part of my role is to, to make sure we were overseeing those processes, is to make sure the data was coming across from point to point so that we can then use that information to put protocols in place and move that through the continuum. So it's a team of nurse navigators that report up to an operational director type. Is that what that structure looks like? Yeah, yeah I think report up to, but I also think work in conjunction with. You've got some equal abilities and skill sets to be very collaborative. I've heard Dr. Matt McCord say one of the issues in reality with a lot of, in air quotes, team-based care is that at the end of the day, no one owns the patient. In the olden days, you had a doctor who felt personal responsibility. And I'm certainly not suggesting that this isn't the case now. I'm oversimplifying the scenario to make a point here. But in the olden days, you you had one physician working with a patient, right? The old black bag days. Now, a lot of times hospitals are trying to move to this team-based model, but it sounds to me like maybe they're trying to do it, but not properly. So you've got team-based care. And at the end of the day, you know, everybody's pointing to somebody else Everyone's kind of shrugs yeah. their shoulder and thinks that somebody else owns the patient. So you wind up with a lot of patients who don't get great care because nobody is in charge of them ultimately or the shift changes and nobody knows what happened yes. in the shift before. So it, it sounds like the point that you're making is just because you've got team-based care doesn't mean that nobody knows who's in charge here. Yes, I absolutely agree. The thing with team-based care is you also have to have team-based accountability. When you think about who owns the patient, ultimately it's the team that owns the patient. It's not an individual. And I think too oftentimes we try to put that on an individual person or an individual doctor, or individual practice when, when collectively it's a team. High functioning teams have that mutual accountability to know that we're not going to collectively let a patient fall through the cracks because we can't figure out who needs to make or who needs to deal with a particular issue. So in other words, it's got to come together. If a patient does fall through the cracks, then every single person on the team feels responsible and accountable for what just happened there. Yes, absolutely. As opposed to nobody, which is probably a symptom of team-based care not done well. 
That's right. Exactly. And, and it's a symptom of, you know, a, a clinically integrated network not being very clinically integrated. And this kind of goes back to culture and change management, because unless there's the right culture in place, if a patient does fall through the cracks and have a, has a very poor avoidable outcome, then the situation is just going to happen internally where everybody just shrugs their shoulder and thinks that it was somebody else. That happens a lot in a fee-for-service world where, where you're just living and only in fee-for-service. Especially if there's a fee-for-service chassis on an air quotes team-based yeah. care. It, it almost yes. sounds like it's worse. <laughs> yes, I think it is because that's where the silos come into effect. You think about healthcare as it, as it used to be, and I think in some cases probably still is, but a patient's discharged from the hospital and they're sent in a wheelchair to the hospital door and you wave goodbye, a thought is what are we going to do once this patient is heading out of the hospital? Who's going to pick Who's going to pick up the process from there? How is that team going to surround that patient and take care of them? So we've got number one, culture, two, interoperability, three, patient-centered processes, four, actionable information, five, clinical integration. What do you have as number six, my friend? You've got to build some infrastructure around what you want to do. Networks really need to sit down and kind of understand, okay, what do we want to accomplish with this? What's our goal? and build around that goal and do it in such a manner that you're you're focused, you're starting small, you're not trying to go out and you know get multiple contracts and all this all together. You're learning as you go. If you plan as you go and you have that planning put together, then you have a clear idea of, maybe not a clear idea, but a better idea of what it's going to take to get there. And having that in place and thinking through those processes, you have to really give that strategic planning a lot of thought and a lot of attention along the way. I am looking for that Cheshire Cat quote. If you don't know where you want to go, then it doesn't matter which path you take, right? As per the Cheshire Cat. Number six in our list here would be planning. You have to plan if this is going to be a success here. You really have to sit down in advance and think through maybe the first five things that we've been talking about. What are our protocols? What does happen? Doing all those patient-centered flow diagrams that we were talking about. Is that mainly what has to happen in advance? I think it's not only in advance, but I think it has to be done while you're going through the process. Uh-huh. It, it's some routine effort coming back through and reassessing. All right, this is what we plan to do. This is where we went. And this is what's happened. Do we need to adjust? Do is does the protocols effective? Are our processes changing? What new entrances have we had into the network from a care perspective? Really reassessing. So many times I think people put together networks or in life overall, they got a plan, they put it together and they implement the plan or start to implement the plan, but they don't ever come back and reevaluate the plan. What was our intention? And what are they evaluating the plan against? I mean, it sounds like one one thing that's sort of unspoken through the, the six things that we've talked about is getting alignment across every single organization relative to what good looks like. And that might, you know, talking about the two canoes, right now, which might affect a clinically integrated network as well as everybody else. You know, there's a lot of times when, and I'll leave this to the listener's imagination, but what might be best for the patient has some financial disincentive or what might be best for some aggregated payer contract doesn't exactly mesh with the MSSP incentives, right? Like, so I could see that organizationally, it would be a thing. Like there would need to be meetings to 
get everybody to figure out how you're gonna wind your way through what incentive trumps some other incentive. Like everyone have to be aligned with that. Otherwise you're like the Cheshire cat says, right? Like how do you know what the right <laughs> way forward is? Yeah, I think that's where the data and that information comes into is you're constantly feeding that information back and, and looking at your outcomes, looking at your progress looking at your incentives and in, in the financial piece that's being brought forth from your activities and mirroring that against what, what we plan to do and, and how that plan either was successful or how that plan failed. There must be some kind of, like you take your financial performance, you compare it against some set of patient metrics, right? And then it sounds like everybody's going to have to sit in a room and figure out, okay, well, this is what we at an organization are going to put forth as our core imperatives or our key performance indicators or whatever, and then design processes and do the planning against those KPIs. Having those committees that look at quality process, having those committees that look at finance, it's a process. It's not an easy process. And it's not a simple solution. It's trying to to align. You know, in alignment is not an easy task by any means. <laughs> There's no silver bullet, I, at least one that I haven't discovered. And, and so trying to move through that it's painful to think about having to do those things, but it, I think they're so necessary to achieve success. So six, you got a plan. You got to have alignment. You got to <laughs> create the sheet of music that everybody's singing off of here. What's number seven? That one goes with the first one is, is leadership. You know, the, our first being culture, but I think culture drives leadership. Leadership drives culture. It's a, a yin and yang relationship. But I think leadership has to be, I think they have to be very nimble. And I think it has to be flat. There has to be a group decision-making process and, and not an authoritative process of this is how it's going to go. That it's I want to say it's almost a negotiation in some cases, but I think you've got to have good leadership to be able to direct people to help them understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we're doing it for. I had on Dr. David Carmouche, who was a leader at Oshner, now at Walmart, also Gary Campbell, who's the CEO of Johnson Health Center. And both of them really were emphasizing that point. It takes leadership here that a lot of things within an organization are, are top down and it's very difficult for people at the grassroots to bubble anything up or change culture or change incentive structures from which certain behaviors may evolve from without having a strong leader who's pushing hard for those changes to transpire. It sounds like you're saying effectively the same thing. Absolutely. It, leadership's a big word and it, it's hard to describe all the different aspects of leadership. But you know, I, I think most people know leadership when they see it. And most people know leadership when they experience it. It's going to come out in the wash if there's not strong leadership, because I think it's really difficult to evolve and innovate as an organization without a leader pushing. I feel like if there's a hallmark of an organization that doesn't have strong leadership, it's that everybody just kind of does the same thing they did last year. If I was just going to pick one thing yeah. like that I was going to look for as a sign. I think some leaders push and I think some leaders pull. And I think, you know, those that push are motivating others. Those that pull are, are people that are being innovative and they're, they're getting people that are hungry. They're wanting more. They're wanting to achieve more. They're wanting to see what they're doing makes a difference in taking care of people. So push is more setting up structures and moving people off the dime, so to speak. But then pull is providing an adequate vision that people want to move toward. Probably the best yeah. leaders do some combo of both. I would think so, yes. If you were going 
to give some top line advice, summarize everything that we've talked about. We've talked about seven things that are really essential for a clinically integrated network to, to get off the ground and have a chance of success here. Is there anything that you would want to say, just having worked with as many clinically integrated networks as you have and having been in the space as long as you have? A couple of things. One would be infrastructure has got to be there. There's got to be an investment up front to build that infrastructure. The second would be to start small. Don't try to tackle everything at once. Uh, start small, get some successes, and it will build as you go. And focus on foundational elements. We talked about seven different things there, keeping those at the forefront, understanding those things as you build that infrastructure. I think the biggest thing is you have to be almost extreme in picking the right people to do these roles. There are people in healthcare that, that have a calling to be in healthcare, that, that have a passion at varying levels. Make sure you've got the right people in the right roles. If you pick the right people and you get the right people in those roles, your success will be much more achievable and much more than anticipated. It's amazing the difference that it makes when the right people are in the right role. So many things that are such yeah. a challenge when you're dragging <laughs> a crew <Yeah>. behind <laughs> you just go away yeah. if you have people that you're, Absolutely. you where you can link hands and move forward together. It's, you know, you go back to that team-based care. It, it's people that hold each other accountable. Good point. Do you have any advice for self-insured employers here? You know, one of the things that we talked about at the top of this conversation was that an, an opportunity that a clinically integrated network might have is is contracting directly with self-insured employers. If I'm sitting in the employer's chair, what do I need to be looking for in a clinically integrated network? Clinically integrated network is going to go make a proposal to a, an employer. They're going to focus on cost, of course, and this is how we can reduce your cost. But I think the thing behind that cost is how well does the network work together to achieve that cost? I see. I would have two key questions for a clinically integrated network. If I was on the employer side looking at a clinically integrated network, one would be, do you have dedicated resources that are going to manage care for those that, that have chronic conditions and need it, but also be able to manage wellness? Because once, once you achieve that wellness, we want to be able to maintain it. The second piece would, I would want them to describe in detail what that process looks like in working with your network. Walk me through a patient's experience with the network dealing with various conditions. That would tell me, do they have good processes in place? Do they've got dedicated resources they are going to be conducting the overall process and be have someone to reach out to and, and work with? In understanding that process in more detail is, is going to tell you how well they work together. Because if they've got that detailed process lined out and they can speak to it in detail, it's a good sign that they've really done their homework. They put some things in place and they're really following those best practices that are out there. You want the employer. And when I, I think both of us, when we're using the term employer, using as, as shorthand for the employer and their constellation of consultants and TPAs, but you're effectively trying to figure out whether the employer can adequately steer to the clinically integrated network in an effective way. Maybe not, not steer within the network, but how well the network works together. How well, this sounds almost kind of silly, but how integrated they are. If you're going to be within the network, then I'm more interested in how well the network works together than keeping you in the network. And that may be a little counterintuitive when you think about it from a cost standpoint. Again, sort of the thread throughout this entire conversation is it's real easy to say integrated, but what does that actually mean? Like, did they go through the yes. seven things that we just talked about? So asking questions relative to 
interoperability or actionable information or patient-centered processes, peppering that clinically integrated yeah. group along yeah. this, these parameters would be important. T- tell me how you do what you do and understanding that how they do it. We know what they do. If, they, if they're going to come with pricing and information and understanding, you know, here's our cost structure, here's what we can do from a standpoint of, of the different avenues and services that we offer. But I, I'd be very interested to know how you're going to do it. Sean, if people are interested in learning more about the work that you do, where would you direct them for more info? They can find me on LinkedIn, but then also caravanhealth.com is probably the, the key source of where you'll find information about what we at Caravan do in working with not only clinical networks, but our core businesses is working with ACOs and building ACOs. Sean Rhodes, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. It was an honor to be here. I appreciate the time. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.